God, I pray that you will change each and every one of us today to become more like you. To your glory. To your honor. We love you today. In Jesus' name we praise. Amen. Amen. Wow, it's great to be together again this morning and to have our time built around singing praises to the Lord, praying to Him, and sharing in His Word. I hope you'll open your Bible with me to John chapter 17. As you do that, I want to encourage you in a particular area. Our youth, every summer, have the privilege of going to Mission Fuge camp, a camp that kind of combines the opportunity to worship together with other youth, the opportunity to be taught the Lord's Word, and then the opportunity to go out and apply that fellowship and that teaching as they do mission work in the community surrounding the camp. And it's always been an excellent time for our youth. And one of the great things about Kingsville Baptist Church is its generosity and its philosophy about these kind of ministries. Rather than having our youth selling uh, chicken or washing cars or fundraising, in order for them to gain sponsorship, to go and be partially paid for on their mission trip, the, they pay $100 of their trip and then the sponsorship is $300. In order for them to do that, Rather than spending time doing things that I think are kind of, I mean, honestly, I think selling stuff is almost meaningless. Rather than that, they do ministry. And in order to qualify for being sponsored, our youth are required to do 60 hours of ministry. Isn't that great? They actually engage in VBS and teach and help and lead. They engage in ministries around the church. And so they have to accrue 60 hours of actual ministry labor with our church, through our church, and into the community in order to to be sponsored. And then what we ask of you as a congregation, which we've been doing for many years now, is you simply be willing to sponsor the youth Rather than buying their chocolate and their chicken and their pizzas and having them wash your car and giving them more money than you can drive through up here and get it done at the five-buck place, how about we do what we've been doing and you say, okay, I'll help. And the way that you help is either through a full sponsorship, say, okay, look, I'll, I'll come up to the plate and I'll pay a full $300 for a youth, or a partial sponsorship, which is any portion thereof. And say, I want to invest in our youth. I want to invest in their lives. And I am so thankful that what we focus them on is ministry. Because what we're doing, we're not raising salespeople. We're raising ministers. And our goal is to raise up a godly core of men and women who will carry the gospel of the kingdom and the king into 
this world. And Steve and Wendy do a fantastic job of putting together the ministry that the youth will be doing and utilizing them according to their gifts and their skills and their abilities. And so here's what I'm asking you to begin praying about today and making yourself ready to give in the next month or so that you would say, I pray for the youth, I will sponsor the youth, and then I will also be willing to enter a relationship with a youth that I would sponsor. So that a few years ago when we were doing sponsorships, we put some pictures of the the youth that we were sponsoring on our refrigerator. And guess what? They're still there. And we still think of them. We still pray for them. We still have this really unique relationship with them. And so I want to encourage you to join in and be a part of that. You'll be getting some literature in the bulletin about how to do that and how to carry that. And Steve will be telling you more about that in the coming weeks. Now, Jump into John 17 with me, and as you're doing so, remember 5 o'clock tonight is the Experiencing God celebration, so show up. We're going to hear about 14 wonderful testimonies from folks in our congregation who've gone through Experiencing God and what their experience was like, and we're going to celebrate together what God has been doing. During the week leading up to Easter, uh, the Lord seemed to point me in the direction of reading through John's Gospel uh, in the time from the anointing of Jesus for his burial up through the crucifixion. And so as I was pouring over, thinking over, reading over that the week before Easter, I came to John 17, and it's almost as if the Lord um, brought me to it freshly and anew. And, and it was like uh, he was speaking very clearly to me through his word just by all that Jesus was praying for. And as I studied, my attention was turned to some things that I had not previously noticed. And when I noticed them, I was deeply convicted, I was deeply moved, that maybe in this very complex prayer, and we read the whole thing, and you see how it's meaty and it's thick and it's doctrinal and it's wonderful and it's rich. And here's Jesus and just shortly before he is going to depart from this earth, he has this opportunity to pray specifically for his disciples. And I started thinking, what is he praying here? What specifically is he asking of the Father? And I want to tell you the truth. I was astounded as God made my eyes able to see specifically what Jesus was asking for. And I pondered that. And I knew that it was something that the Lord wanted me to apply to my heart and then bring to us together as a church. And so the the goal here is to find out what Jesus is praying for and why. And try to simplify it, boil it down to something we could walk away from here today and say, you know, I I get that. Now, in order to do that, I've got to work backwards through the text. And in order to do that, I also have to do two very technical things that when I get to them, I'm going to tell you that it's technical, but there's a reason I'm going to spend the time on the technicalities. There's There's something happening here that is worth our consideration. So we're going to kind of kick off by starting towards the end of the prayer. Because there's 
two ultimate things that Jesus is praying for. So number one, there are two ultimate things that Jesus is praying for. Two goals, two purposes, two ends toward which Jesus is praying. In other words, when you, when you get down to the bottom of his prayer, this is what he's after. And you can boil it down to two things. One of those is eternal, something that's going to last forever. So you can go to letter A, and, and here's what we're going to do. I gave you a whole sheet today for a purpose, um, because I want you to draw on the back of it. So we're going to do a drawing together on the back, and if you turn it this way, it'll match what's about to come up on the screen. Because what I want to be able to do is lay it out according to how Jesus presents it, so you can visualize what is going on in the prayer and say, that's it. Like I did on the day that I was reading through it, and I said, that's it. So let's take a look at, and and when the screen comes up in just a minute, just kind of draw on the back exactly what the screen looks like. And if you hold your paper at this angle, it'll match kind of how the screen is shaped. Does that make sense? It, It made sense when I was thinking about it. Okay. So the first thing that he's asking for is something that's going to last for all of eternity. And it's sort of an ultimate goal. And that is found in 1724. All that Jesus is doing, all that God is doing is Jesus, is toward this eternal goal. And what is that goal? It's 1724. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory. In other words, here's what Jesus is after. You and him for all eternity. And that when you get there, you can see him. In all of his glory. But this is this is awesome. This is going to be a defining moment in all of eternity when the church gathers in front of Jesus and whatever it is that he does when he goes, this is me. And everything in the universe will seem small in comparison to that moment. No star, no heavenly body, no thing you've ever seen on earth, no thing in nature will even compare to this moment when you are with Jesus and he says, this is me. And you're going to go, whoa. So this is what he's after. This is the ultimate thing. This is the thing that will exist for all of eternity. That all of eternity, you're going to bask in the glory of Jesus and what that means, that, that there will never be this any, any opportunity for boredom because forever and ever He will reveal His infiniteness so that you will never be bored. Because He is infinite, you will never run out of things to discover for all of eternity. That's how big Jesus is. And so He's after this. That's what the cross is about. It's what the church is about. It's what history is about. It's what creation is about. It's about that moment. That's what he's after. So, so now we go to letter B. And, and so let's draw. Go ahead. There, draw this. Draw those little lines so that you could draw something above it. A word in the middle of the little lines. Something between the two sets of the little lines. And then something below. It'll be just like this. So the eternal goal, here it is. Be with me, behold my glory. This is what Jesus is after. This is his eternal goal. This is what's going on at the cross. This is what happened when God spoke the world into existence. This is what he was after. That one day you would behold Jesus and say, 
That's like super wow. Then, in Jesus' prayer, there's a temporal goal. So that's letter B, a goal that will exist in present times. In other words, he's after something now, too. That's later. We're not beholding his glory. We're not be- that's coming. We're waiting on that day. But something is to be happening now that he is asking for, and so he asks for that. And you can read it in 17.21 and 17.23. I've marked them there. Look at it in 17.21. That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe. In other words, right now, here's one of the things Jesus is after in creation, in the cross, and in the church is that the world will believe that God sent Jesus. And then he re-emphasizes it in verse 23, not just believe, that the world may know that God sent Jesus. So in this moment, right now, in creation, in the cross, and in the church, do you know what God is doing? He is using the church... To convince the world that God sent Jesus. That's what he's doing right now. All these seven billion people walking around on the planet right now. Your purpose on this earth right now. It's not just to eat and sleep and drink and work and make money and pile up money and retire. No, your purpose right now is that through some mechanism he will show us in just a moment that you convince a lost, separated, hell-bound, purposeless world that there is a Savior and that God sent Him. So that's going on in your life right now. So let's draw it. Put it over there. Present time goal. Now we're going to get technical. And I'm really sorry about this, but it matters. In, in the language the New Testament is written in, it's called Greek. You know, we all go, that's all Greek to me. They have ways of constructing their sentences very specifically to communicate something. And one of their very particular words that they use is a little bitty word. And that little bitty word is called Hina, H-I-N-A. And I'm trying to think if I've shown that yet. No, I haven't. So we're going to get to that. But this is the technical part. Now, why would I say that? Well, in the English translations, here's how the little Greek word Hina is translated. It's translated in order that, so that, or for the purpose of. In other words, it connects two ideas that one idea is leading to the other. That one thing leads to the other. And they're joined together by this little bitty word so that the one thing that's leading to the other shows that they're actually dependent on each other. And that's going to matter in just a second. 
Why? Well, I want you to reflect when Will was reading the Scripture today. He said something that I hope caught your attention. Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world. Now, here's Jesus. Last big prayer of his life. We've got the garden prayer. That's the, not my will, but thou will be done. But this is the last big prayer of his life. We've got the prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But this is the last big prayer. John 17. So John writes all this down. Because we're supposed to hear it and know it and understand it. And in that prayer, he says, I'm not praying for the world. And you think, golly, does he not care? Well... Obviously, he cares because the present time goal that he is after is that the world know and believe that God sent him. But Jesus doesn't pray for the world. This is going to become important. So let's move to the second part. Number two. There is one operational goal towards which Jesus is praying in John 17. Now, what is an operational goal? Well, it's the goal by which something is achieved. All right, let's, let's try to put it down into plain English. All right? If one of us said to our child, I want you to get a job so you can support yourself. The ultimate job... The ultimate goal, excuse me, would be to support yourself. That's what the ultimate goal is. I want you to support yourself. But in order that, hina, in order that you support yourself, you need to get a job. The getting the job is the operational goal that will lead to the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, self-sufficiency. How are you going to do that? Get a job! That's how you make money. It's not growing out back. Get a job. So, so the operational goal is get a job. But that's not, the, that's not the end goal. The goal is not just to have a job. The goal is to be self-sufficient. That's the ultimate thing. Okay. So look at that together. Get a job. He nah, In order that for the purpose of that you may support yourself. That's how the construction of what we're talking about is built. Jesus' ultimate goal is that we be with him in all of eternity. He's after that. That's what we're going to enjoy post-life, post-everything is over. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. That's coming. But it's not now. What's now is that there are billions of lost people who need to know that God sent Jesus to save. And the operational goal is that God is going to use the church to convince them. But how? Let's see what he says. Number two, there's one operational goal. So let's go to the next slide. What is that operational goal? Unity and oneness. This is what pressed up against my heart. And smote my heart. You know, in the Old Testament, God smote somebody. God smote my heart. In this moment that I realized this, God was speaking to me very plainly through the text. And he said, here's the deal. 
It's not how fancy your buildings are and how nice your programs are. It is not how many things you do and if your evangelism training is just right. That is not God's mechanism for convincing the world. God's mechanism for convincing the world is the unity and the oneness of Christians. That's it. It's not gospel slickness. It's not radio and TV programs. It's not great revivals. Jesus didn't mention any of those things. Here's Jesus in his last days praying, I want these two last things. I want them to be with me, and I want the world to know you sent me. And here's how. How does he do that? I want you to see the list there. Every one of these starts with Hina. And every one of these ends with Hina. This is amazing. Because he's building a case for us to understand that there is an ultimate purpose that he is after. People to be with him for all of eternity, behold his glory, and that right now in time, we convince people that they can be with him in all of eternity. That's the job of the church. And the way the church does that is through the miracle of unity and oneness. So Jesus says four times that they may be one, even as we are, that they may all be one. That they may be one. That they may be perfected in unity. And every one of those ends with a hina that says, so that the world may believe, so that the world may know, so that they may be with me for all of eternity. So you've got a hina before and after, so it looks like this. Here's our picture. Next slide. All right. I'm going to give you a second to kind of digest that. You've got these goals, and you've got Hena right before them, which means for the purpose of. And then you've got the operational goal. Here's the operational goal. You want to see people come to Jesus? Be unified. You want to see people know that God sent Jesus? Be one. You want to see the world impacted for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Be one. Be unified. That's how. No scheme, no sales pitch. Jesus knew that the miraculous act of bringing a bunch of different kinds of people from every tongue and every tribe, every race and every culture, and making them able to love and serve and get along is the biggest miracle of all. It's the miracle of a changed heart that turns us into lovers. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. So Jesus is building a case through his prayer that he wants us to know, and he's using technical terms in Greek that are very important that the hearers in Jesus' day would have immediately got, and because we brought it over to English, it's harder for us to kind of work out. That hina means the operational goal, that they may be one, that they may all be one, that they may be one, that they may be perfect in unity, is that which causes the world to believe that Jesus was sent by God to save them. Um, Try not to get ahead of myself, slowing down. I'm going to tell you two stories. 
that illustrate what I'm talking about. When I became pastor of Evans Creek Baptist Church in Pearl River, Louisiana, the church had been there for 85 years. It's a wonderful experience of growing in the Lord and learning in my first full-time pastorate. I'd served as as an associate pastor before, but uh, it's different riding on the bus and driving the bus. It's really different. And uh, and so as I was ministering in the neighborhood, there was a a lady that literally lived. uh, You could stand in the church property and throw a rock and hit her her house. And so I noticed that she was very standoffish any time I'd seen her, and I thought, What's going on with that? And so I, through some some relationship building, earned the trust of having a conversation with her. And so I sat down with her and I said, tell me about yourself. Everybody tells me you're an agnostic. That's pretty interesting to me. You grew up right beside the church. You've never lived anywhere else. How can you be so close to the church that when they're playing the piano, you can hear it inside your place? She said, here's how. I was the piano player. I grew up in the church. My mom and dad opened and closed the doors of the church. I played the piano from late childhood adolescence until early teens. And one Sunday after a business meeting, the men of the church had a fist fight on the front porch of the church. And I'll tell you what, I've never been back and I won't be. You see, she was simply telling us exactly what Jesus says. That if you want to verify to the world that Jesus is legit, you don't do it through a whole bunch of texts and a slick presentation. You do it through a bunch of changed people who love each other so much that we bear one another's burdens and we pray for each other and we confront each other in our sin and we do life together in such a way that everybody looks at us and says... They're kind of one. They're really united. They love each other. A couple of years ago, during one of the hurricanes that passed through the area, time and the power was out, we had some college students staying with us. One of the college students was working with us in the kitchen. And a, a Corel bowl fell on the floor onto the tile. Moms and dads, what happens when a Corel bowl falls onto hard tile? You ever done that? It explodes. It's unbreakable to a point, but if it ever reaches its point of breaking, it just goes, and glass, Corel glass, goes everywhere. And it's a really loud noise, and it hits. And I watched her. We were all in the kitchen together, and I watched her freeze. I thought, now, that's interesting. So we all kind of went to work, Sherry and I and Lane and Laurel and told everybody, be still, be still, be still, especially if you're barefooted. We're going to clean all this up. Don't, don't step on the glass. And so we started sleep, And she just stood there. And she didn't move. And finally, we said, what's up? She said, I was waiting on the cursing and yelling and screaming that goes on in our house when something happens. And it didn't happen in your house. This place is different. You see, the world is looking for something different. They're looking at something so significantly different that it's not like the world. That it's people who love and labor and get along in Christ in unity. So, here's how it looks now. 
But I want you to make sure of something. Jesus did not ask God to make us one. When we pray, we have language that we use in prayer that's very important. Let's take the Lord's Prayer for instance. Hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those are all imperatives. We actually use an imperative to God when we pray. Now, it's used in a different way than we use imperatives. Sometimes you look at your child and you say, sit down. That's an imperative. We don't do that with God. But when we're praying, we actually use imperatives. And we say, give us, and it's imperative. Forgive us, it's imperative. But it's an imperative of a plea. It's actually asking for God to do something he alone can do. In the whole prayer of John 17, listen carefully, Jesus only uses the imperative about three words. He only asked God to do three things. Now we're going to make the connection. So let's go to number three. There are two necessary prerequisites to any of these goals being met. This is a windy word. Thank you, Wendy Blocker. The word prerequisite, she helped me kind of understand a way that I could communicate this as staff was going over all of this this week and praying through what we're going to do in the future. There's two necessary prerequisites to any of these goals. For us to be one, in order that the world may know, God does not, Jesus does not pray that the world may know. He doesn't say, God, make the world know. He doesn't do that. God, tell the world. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't pray, God, make them one. He doesn't pray that. He has another Hina situation, which means that something is a prerequisite for the world knowing and for us to be one. And he breaks that into two pieces. What are they? Okay, let's go. There's the Hina again. So I'm building a case that Jesus built in his prayer. All right, turn it over, put it on there. I promise this is coming to an end that will make some sense. All right, the ultimate goal, present time, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I spelled that wrong, I'm sorry. But the world may know that you sent me. That's the ultimate temporal goal that Jesus is working in the church in his final prayer. That's what he's after. How is he going to get that? Well, that they may be one. That they all may be one. That they may be one. That they may be perfected in unity. That's how the world will know. But how will we ever be made one? Jesus doesn't say make them one. Jesus actually uses two imperatives in relation to the church. And here they are. Next slide. The first one is a mutual salvation. Jesus uses the imperative form of the word keep. And he says, Holy Father Keep them in thy name. And he says, Holy Father, keep them from the evil one. The first way that we're going to be unified is if we're all truly saved. If we're not, I don't care how small of a space you pack us in. You can put us in like sardines. If we're not truly saved, we will not be unified. We just won't. It's an impossibility. And so he's praying that God keep them in his name. That is a reference in Old Testament doctrine of God saving people. Whosoever shall call upon the 
name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the Lord I am means I am with you, God with us. So this is where God is. God is with the church. He is in the church. So keeping us in his name is a, is a theological term for the Hebrews that meant salvation. And by keeping us in his name, keep us from the evil one, Satan. Don't let him have us. So this is what Jesus actually asked for. He said, this is my prayer. Father, keep them. Then he says something else. He says, in verse 17, here's his next imperative. How did I do this? Go ahead. I can't remember. All right, there you go. Go ahead and write that on. I'm taking a little extra of your time today. Um, I think it's worth it. Mutual salvation. Okay, we got that. Let's go to the next. And a mutual sanctification. Salvation is going to bring us together. But what is going to mold us into a body and keep us together in the midst of the friction, in the midst of the fact that we're sinful people, in the midst of the fact that we're different cultures and different races, uh, we're different backgrounds, we're different understandings, we have all this. What's going to do that? Well, the mutual salvation is going to bring us together. What is going to weave us, mold us, shape us, and keep us together is a mutual sanctification. This is the other imperative. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That this work that God is doing in us is making us like Jesus, which is what keeps us one. Now, I want to share something with you. If you resist the process of sanctification, you immediately create disunity. If you willfully sin and unrepentantly continue, you will do nothing but create division in the body. That's why Jesus has it on the two things he's asking for you. Remember, he says, I'm not praying for these guys alone, but for all of those who will believe because of their word. That means Jesus actually prayed for you when he was getting ready for the cross. And he says, save them, Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. And clean them up. Sanctify them. Make them holy. So that the process of God putting us together, listen carefully, causes sin to be exposed among us. There's nothing that will reveal the weakness of our flesh as things like marriage, as things like rearing children, as things like laboring together, as things like living together, as things like interacting together and serving together. It will bring out the worst in us. And the sanctification process is always to reveal the bad so that the good may come. In other words, your spouse's purpose your children's purpose, your parents' purpose, your church members' purpose as a believer is to provoke you in such a way that the bad rises to the surface so that Jesus 
can fix it. That's what he's doing. And that's why he rubs us all together until we irritate each other. Because that irritation is often the revelation of a sinful nature, a greedy nature, a hateful nature, an immoral nature, whatever it is. And as that nature rises to the surface, Jesus in the sanctification process says, See? I want to fix that so you'll be like me. So here's what's happening. Let's go to the next slide and now watch how all this is coming together. Jesus' goal, ultimately, is for the church to be with him for all of eternity, behold his glory. That's the eternal one. But right now, here's what Jesus wants to do through the church and what he's praying for. He wants the church to be in such a way that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. That's what the billions of people on this planet need right now, is some kind of testimony. Well, how's that done? The Henoch laws tells us that that is dependent on what is before. That's how Henoch's work. They tell you that there's a relationship. Get a job, Hina, that you can support yourself. It's dependent. You can't support yourself without a job. So it's dependent. But in order to get the job, you have to have prerequisites. You've got to be able to do the work. There's got to be something that gets you the job. So there's another prerequisite. Maybe you say to your child this. I would like for you to get a good college education so that you can get a job, so that you can... Support yourself. The ultimate goal is support yourself. To get a job may require a college degree. And so you start with a college degree. And once the degree is obtained, it allows you to get the job in order that you may support yourself. So they're all dependent on each other. So the... Listen, Jesus is interested in evangelism. But he knows that evangelism doesn't come by praying for the world. He even states it that way. I'm not praying for the world. He knows that evangelism comes by praying for the church. And he doesn't even pray that they will convince the world. He doesn't pray, God, make them convince the world. He doesn't pray, God, make them one. He doesn't pray that. He says, God, make them saved and make them sanctified. Because when they are saved, being brought together, and they're sanctified, being molded together, They will be united and the world will know. That's so next slide. Simply, it's kind of off to the side. I hate that. But the arrow moves in that direction. It starts with this. Listen carefully. If you are not unified with the church, your first problem may be this. It may be that you're not saved. If you find that you're always criticizing the church and always at conflict with the church, do you know what the problem may not be? The church. It may be you. And it's possible that you've piled up in here today with the rest of us and you're lacking the one thing that truly brings us together. That somehow you've been playing it, faking it, or even fooling yourself. But I want to tell you, there is no way into salvation other than God keeping you in His name through your personal faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. And so I want to start there. You want to get along with the church and be one? Don't try to get along. First, make sure you're saved. 
Very often, church conflict is the result of unsaved people trying to act saved, and it doesn't work. And so I want to start there. That's where Jesus started. Second, you may be here today and you may truly be saved. But you may be at odds with the church and church members. You may be at odds with family and family members. Parents, children, cousins, spouses. You may be at odds with them. And at odds with the fellowship of the church. Because God has raised some issue in your heart of sin. And you have borne your fist at Him and you have said, this far and no further can you have my life. And as you shake your fist at God in the process of sanctification, you begin to fracture your relationships. You begin to break your family down, your friends down, You begin to fracture all the things around you because apart from sanctification, we are not going to be unified. Apart from a humble willingness that God raises issues in our life through exposing us to other people in the church and even in the world and exposes to us what's really down in our heart and we're willing to say, God, I humbly come to you and dear God, you have shown me how sinful I am. God, help me. I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him I freely give. If we won't come to that part, we will not be unified. And I don't care how many experiencing gods we take and how many courses we offer, how much we emphasize Sunday school, and if we have a revival every stinking week, listen to me in love. If we will not surrender to Jesus, we will not be one. And so that's our need. You want to be one? Come to Jesus. And through His salvation, In His sanctification, He'll make you one in such a surprising way that the world will flock to you because you're so different. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm going to challenge you first about your salvation. Jesus was here with the disciples praying. They were hearing him. Here was the one thing you need. They need. You need God to keep you in his name and keep you from the evil one. And there is only one protection in his name and from the evil one. That is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the Lord of all. That's that's it. And that's where you have to start. Placing your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Would you do that with me now? Maybe you're a long-time church member. Maybe you're brand new here today. You say, I want that oneness. I want it. Where's the starting place? It's right here. It's with Jesus. Would you pray with me? It's not a magic prayer, but listen, if you've heard this good news today about Jesus' death and resurrection and this oneness He offers and you want it, you can ask Him for it now. It says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray with me? Dear God in heaven, I know I'm not one with you. I know I'm not one with Jesus, so I know I'm not one with everybody else. i got broken relationships with you and others. And oh God, how I want that to be fixed. 
And so right now, I believe in Jesus. I believe He died for my sins and was raised from the dead. He was perfect and sinless, and He paid the price. I ask you now, forgive me and save me. Oh, listen, it's so beautiful. He will. Thank Him now that He will. God, thank You for offering me this salvation in Jesus' name. There are others here. And you, you know you're saved. But you've drawn a line at Jesus' lordship and authority. And you really think you can go on in some form of witness to the world and some form of work with the church when you are at odds with God Himself. And it's fracturing you. It's breaking you on the inside. It's breaking you on the outside. And here is Jesus saying to you, let me fix that. How do you do that? You simply say yes to Jesus. Whatever you raise in my life to work on, I'll address it. Whatever sins have been exposed recently in my relationships, I'll I'll give them to you. I'll repent. Even today, I repent. Would you do that? Unity will never come until you settle your salvation and yield to His sanctification. Would you do that now? Jesus, And maybe you would come down here and even kneel, bend a knee to Jesus this morning and say, I bend my knee to you. I'm all in. Whatever you ask of me, I'll do. Unity will follow after that, just as it's shown in the Bible passage here. And when that unity follows, the world will know. Come. Would you stand? Would you come? Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound. Of your great name Every fear Has no place At the sound Of your great name The enemy He has to At the sound of your great name, Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us, the Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up. And all the world will praise your great name. And all the weak.
find this strength at the sound of your great name and hungry souls receive 